Viktor Frankl said, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Stay tuned for the next hour as Sue explores the human psyche, what makes us tick and how to live better, more fulfilled and more meaningful lives. Only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on the Finding Human program. My guests today are Dr. Naomi Rappaport and Peter Bailey. And I'm really sorry that we're starting so late. Unfortunately, we just couldn't connect. There was a bit of a problem. I've already had a message from uh, Australia saying, where are you? So we're back on air now. Welcome, Naomi, and welcome, Peter. This is our second talk on Jewish soldiers in World War II and on the opening of the Chaim Herzog Museum in Israel next year. And um, I would just like to say that we've just gone through a, a Sunday, the Remembrance Day, and I saw this lovely quote. It said, for those who leave never to return, for those who return but are never the same, we remember. And I think that's what our program is really about, is about remembering and especially remembering the unbelievable heroic contribution of Jewish people in all walks of life to the, the fighting against in World War II. Peter, I would actually like to just say that if anyone would like to hear our first podcast, please pick it up on Finding Human IFM and you'll pick it up there. I think we did it on the 2nd of November. And you'll get a lot of information on that one. I would just like to start by saying that, uh, let me introduce quickly Naomi. She's a retired <coughs> specialist. She's the first woman to enter private practice and was uh, a specialist physician at the Mill Park Hospital for 28 years. She's got a huge CB, which we're not going through, but she's now doing a lot of volunteer work and research. Part of her research is into the South African Jewish soldiers of World War II for the Chaim Herzog Museum. Um, her mom's brother, Julian Mayer, was in the Transvaal Scottish and was captured and sent to the, a work camp in Dresden. And after uh, Naomi's retirement, she actually went through letters that, he, that were kept in a shoebox from him and documented many of his experiences, which are now, as uh, she put into a book, which is now in the Chaim Herzog Museum. Peter is an, uh, uh, was a major in the South African military reserves. He's a historian and author of two books, Street Names in, uh, in Israel and Men of Valor. I think you can probably get these from Delphine. And he's very involved in the Jewish contribution to South African military history. Um, welcome to both of you. Peter, I would like to actually start with you and find out a bit about the museum. Thanks, thanks for on the program. Uh, just a little bit first, before I talk about the actual museum, there are two motivations for museums in Israel. And in this, the case of this particular museum, the one motivation is for the world to be aware of the magnificent fighting, fighting force that the Jewish world provided uh, to participate during the, the, the Second World War uh, to fight against the Nazi scourge. One and a half million Jews fought on the side of the Allies uh, against the scourge. The other element, as you mentioned, is remembering. And remembering is very central to the to the Jewish faith. 
the Hebrew word zachor, uh, which means to remember, is repeated nearly 200 times in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and as the uh, historian uh, Chaim uh, Yerushalmi says, that this, this, this element of memory explains the continuity of the Jewish people through millennia of migration, persecution, destruction, and renewal. And we are now again in a renewal phase, and we are now building this museum to remember. The museum itself is, is designed in a circular route, um, and it starts at a very low level and, and goes up as the war progresses. The introduction, uh, it starts with an introduction right on ground level, where the world was at a very low stage after, after Germany's invasion of Poland, and, and then we rise up into the second sphere, which is the early years, 1939 to 1941, where the Allies were fighting. America was not yet in the war. The Soviet Union was not in the war. And then the third step up is Germany's attack, uh, Operation Barbarossa on the Soviet Union, and how the Soviet Union got involved in, in, in that huge history with its over 500,000 Jewish fighters in the Soviet Army. Mm. It then goes up another level to the United States that brought into the war after the attack on Pearl Harbor and also after the, after the, the victory in El Alamein, uh, and the attack into Libya. The Americans then became involved in the war in the Western Desert and in the North as well. The fifth level up is the partisan fighters and many, many of the underground and partisan fighters were Jews. Um, and included in that are the ghetto fighters, uh, which we'll talk a little bit about later, I hope, yeah. and resistance within the in the concentration camps themselves. Mm -hmm. And then finally, right at the top, the Jewish volunteers who came from what was then Mandate Palestine, soon to be Israel, the reborn state of Israel. Um, and this will also include a dedicated exhibition to Machal, the volunteers from the Jewish diaspora who fought in Israel's 1948 War of Independence. 803 South African Jews participated in that as well. I beg your pardon, 802 South African Jews and one non-Jewish South African. <laughs> Who was the non-Jewish South African as a matter of interest? <laughs> uh, his, his name was Butch Butka, uh, and he's, he was friends with a number of Jews that he fought up north with, and when they went to Palestine, he went with them. And didn't oh, they change his name? I seem to remember the story. He changed his name from Butch Butka because Ben-Gurion wanted the people to take Hebrew's names. And he take, took the name Butch Ben-Yok, um, <laughs> which is basically Butch the son of a Gentile. So, that's, that's gorgeous. You know, with Peter talking about the museum, we were hoping that the retired IDF Brigadier General, uh, who's the director of the museum, Zika Cantor, would join us today. But uh, Naomi was in contact with him, and unfortunately, he already had meetings that had, that had been set up. So we're hoping that next year, just before the opening of the museum, that he will be back with us. Naomi, mm -hmm. before we go to be called to actually move forward a bit. Just tell me a bit about the, a few messages came through last time. They wanted to know a bit more about Harry Schwartz, that you had mentioned him, and I would like you just to please just mention him again. Tell us a bit. Thank you, Sue. Um, Harry Schwartz, actually, his family came from Germany. His father was actually an activist in the Social Democratic Party in Germany, and he got a tip off 
1933 from friends that the police were about to arrest him and he fled to South Africa. He left his family and the following year, Harry and his mother came to South Africa on a ship called the SS Julio Cesari. They lived in Cape Town and in fact, in his autobiography, he writes that he really encountered a lot of discrimination in Cape Town. He had to come, he didn't speak English, the family were extremely poor, and he wrote that, in fact, his bed was the bathtub. Harry mm-hmm. slept in the bathtub. Mm-hmm. In 1936, his grandparents came out to South Africa. They actually came on the ship, the SS Stuttgart, and people will know that this was the last ship allowed into South Africa with mm-hmm. German refugees. They were in Cape Town and then they came up to Johannesburg. He completed his schooling in Johannesburg. He then uh, went ahead and volunteered with the Union Defence Force. Um, he was advised by his commanding officer to change his name because his name was Heinz Schwartz. And it, he was told that if he was ever captured by the Germans, he would have a problem. And that's why he took on the name of Harry Schwartz. He was involved in the Air Force. He um, actually ended up with operations throughout the Mediterranean theatre. And I mentioned the boat, the SS Julio Cesare, because that was the ship that brought the Schwartz family to South Africa. And his squadron actually ended up sinking that ship Hmm. to avoid it being used by the Axis powers. Good heavens. Um, as we all know, he then went on to study law at the University of Witwatersrand. Uh, he became a lifelong friend of Nelson Mandela. And I think our public are all aware of his involvement in politics. He organized many anti-apartheid com- uh, campaigns. He set up, he was a co-founder of the Torch Commando, which was an ex-servicemen's movement to protect the disinformation disfranchisement of the colored people in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And um, Amazing. he dedicated his life to fighting apartheid. And, you know, I think these stories are so important because as hatred and bigotry and anti-Semitism is rising around the world, we really must tell the incredible stories of Jewish heroes Absolutely. around the world and, and remember them. A people without stories actually forget who they are. And I think it's so important for us to bring these stories to the fore. That's amazing. Now, Peter, you've also got a story of judges, people who became judges. They were in the army. Tell, tell us first how they got into South Africa and into the South African army. Well, most of them were born in South Africa, um and volunteered for the army, as did a lot of other 10,000 other South African Jews. Um, they volunteered for the Air Force, they volunteered for the army. Many of them had been in, the, in what they called in those days the active citizen force before uh, before the war broke out. Um, and a number of them became judges of great significance in South Africa. Foremost of them, in, in my opinion, uh, was Cecil Margot, Judge Cecil Margot, uh, he had the DFs, DSO and the DFC, the Distinguished Service Order and the Distinguished Fly, Flying Cross, both of them plus the bar. Uh, mm. 
He commanded 24 Bomber Squadron as a lieutenant colonel, um, and he probably became a household name as a judge at the time of the uh, terrible aircraft disaster of the Helderberg. Uh, oh, that's right. He uh, was in charge of that commission of inquiry. It was the Morgan Commission of Inquiry. Um, and to, to this day, there are still conspiracy theories and uh, his findings have been disputed. But that really made Cecil Morgan a household name. So why uh, was he in the war then? So he was obviously in the Air Force. He was a pilot, yes. He was a bomber squadron commander. He was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. Um, just before Israel's War of Independence, uh, Ben-Gurion, uh, David Ben-Gurion, who became Israel's first prime minister, um, sent for Marga, brought him to Palestine, as it then was, to act as his special advisor on the establishment of the Israeli Air Force. He was then offered command of the Air Force, um, but he refused and returned to South Africa to resume his legal career. Um, then another one is uh, Judge Gerald Gordon. He was born in Kimberley. He served with the South African First Division in East Africa uh, and was later an intelligence officer with South African Air Force headquarters in North Africa. Um, Gerald Gordon's distinction was that he was the first uh, in the new political dispensation in South Africa he was the first judge that was given responsibility for approving uh, security police requests for the bugging of telephones. Huh? Um, that, 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 was, that was his wow. time to fight. Um, <laughs> they must then, have been young, Peter, at the time. I mean, they must have been in their 20s when they entered. Uh, yes. Uh, Cecil Marga was a little bit older, and uh, another judge, Oscar Galgut, was a little bit older, but I'll come to him shortly. T- Tell us about um, him. Uh, Oscar Galgut, um, the same as uh, Cecil Margo, he commanded 24 Squadron. They both commanded the same squadron at different times, and he was awarded uh, the OBE. Um, after the war, he served for many years as president of the Military Pensions Appeal Tribunal, so he retained this connection with, with the military. He obtained his BA Law and later LLB, from something called the Transvaal University College in 1928. Uh, the Transvaal University College was originally a dual campus university before 1910. It had a campus in Johannesburg and a campus in Pretoria. Um, the campus in Johannesburg became the School of Mines after 1910 and later the University of the Witwatersrand. Uh, the campus in Pretoria became Tux or Pretoria University in 1930. That's wow. just a little... A little bit of history unrelated to what we're talking about. Um, Oscar Galgut was appointed to the Transvaal Provisional, uh, Provincial Division of the Supreme Court in 1967, and one year before his retirement, at the age of 70, he was appointed to the Appellate Division. Uh, and so a very distinguished judge. Absolutely, uh, gosh. Of interest, uh, Sir Sidney Kentridge, uh, Whose, uh, whose son, of course, William Kentridge, is a very famous photographer, mm-hmm. uh, artist, photographer. Um, the family started out, <coughs> the family name was originally Kantorovich. Oh, and, really? And uh, Svika Kantor, and Svika told me that a, a branch of the family went to South Africa, and his surname was originally Kantorovich as well. Um, and in Israel, it was Hebraized to Kantor. Ah. So it's quite possible that he is a family member of Sir Sidney Kentridge. Uh, Sidney Kentridge was was part of the defence team during the Mandela treason trial. 
and he refused to, to uh, an appointment to the bench in South Africa, but decided rather to go to the UK, where he became a distinguished uh, member, uh, uh, a judge. Um, and at the age of 99, he's still going strongly. Um, if you anybody wanting to read about him can access the site. Uh, now he has uh, put a whole story about Sir Sidney Kentridge on the site. And there's also uh, Cecil Margot is on there as well. Uh, as is uh, Oscar Galgut. Which site, which, which site, Naomi? Well, the museum. Oh, the Kime Herzog Museum. Yeah, the Museum. It's 101.9 High FM. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Only on 101.9 High FM. There were a lot of inv- um, inventions that came through. Tell me a bit about that. Certainly. Um, is there an echo? I hope not. Um, in terms of the soldiers, there were a lot of extremely intelligent people. And they were involved in inventing equipment for the war effort. One of them was a Dr. Leonard Klatsko, a South African who worked with the British Navy. And he was involved in the development of the cathode ray tube for television. In fact, that's how we ended up getting television. And um, his role in the Navy was the development of infrared night vision. So that was his contribution. He died actually as a young man, and prior to his death, he married a Czechoslovakian woman, a Jewish woman, who became a linguist, and she was employed by the British Army as a listener uh, to pick up messages sent to the German U-boats. Another person who developed an important um, item was a Dr. Robert Koch. Um, he had gone off to the UK and then was went to the States as a Harvard graduate. His, his interest was nutrition, but he wanted to get involved in the war effort and he served with the Canadian um, Air Force and he developed single-pane aviators um, goggles in fact, today these goggles are used for skiing and scuba diving as well. Mm. And the reason he developed these was in the First World War, the lenses of the goggles were double lens, and it caused fuzziness on the periphery of vision. And by developing the single pane goggle, the pilots actually could see more clearly. <clears throat> As I mentioned, he also was involved in nutrition did work at Harvard on vitamins, the discovery of vitamin B and vitamin K, but he and a fellow colleague were also involved in the development of K rations, the standard food parcels that were sent out to the, the American forces. Good heavens. Um, so they contributed to that. Um, but another interesting thing about uh, Robert Koch is when he worked with the Canadian Air Force, he was involved in installing oxygen into the compartments of the planes because, as we know, those planes weren't developed as our planes are today. They needed oxygen. And he used to check the planes on a daily basis. And there was a plane that was going to take Churchill to meet Roosevelt. 
and he found that the oxygen lines had been sabotaged and uh, they found there was a German spy within the Royal Canadian Air Force. Oh, gee whiz. Yeah. This is, this is 101.9 High FM. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human, and I'm back with uh, Peter Bailey and Naomi Rappaport, and we're about to hear um, a very short YouTube by GI, the Jewish Service broadcast from World War II. did play it last time, but it didn't come through on the podcast, and I've had quite a few requests for it to be played again. Thank you, Craig. The first German city to fall to American forces was Aachen on Germany's western border. There, on October 29th, with Nazi artillery still exploding in the distance, a group of American Jewish GIs held a service that was broadcast around the world. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with the American Jewish Committee, brings you now a special broadcast of historic significance. With the first Jewish religious service broadcast from Germany since the advent of Hitler. Lieutenant Max Fuchs, who had been studying to become a cantor, volunteered to sing that day. So they asked me to do the service in Aachen, Germany. The GIs wanted it to do some praying, you know, and some singing. So this was, this was my part of the service. It says the U.S. is beginning to occupy Germany. In the middle of these tank barriers, they held a Jewish service, and it was broadcast both over the air in Germany and was also broadcast by NBC. And it's just an extraordinary uh, statement about the defeat of the Nazis, about overturning the horrible uh, policies of Germany against the Jews. The Jewish chaplain spoke about peace on earth and things like that, and part of the service. It was a wonderful thing, the Yiska service. Yiska means remembering, remembering all the GIs you say a prayer for those GIs. That's when it really hit me. You know, what was happening in Europe was, was during that service, things sort of hit you, you know. You get, you get melancholy because you start to think about... Uh, your family, you know, all the all the people that, that I knew. You see, I knew these people because I was 12 years old when I came here from Poland. The cousins I knew, the uncles I knew, grandparents. But when I looked out and I saw so many Jewish GIs, I wasn't the only one. There wasn't one GI there that didn't have an extended family in Europe somewhere, lost. They all, uh, they all perished. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and I'm back with Dr. Naomi Rappaport and Peter Bailey. And we're talking about the Jewish soldiers in World War II. That short YouTube, you could hear that he was very emotional speaking about it. Uh, he's well in his 90s, that man. 
And because of the emotional wounds of the war and the Holocaust, many of these men and women remain unknown. And Naomi, who's been doing a ge- the genealogy of so many of them, has found that the families are so appreciative to know a, a, a bit about their relatives because the relatives didn't If you'd like to SMS us, please do so on 34519 or telegram us on 061-895-1019. Naomi, just tell me, so that you, you said that last time in our program, you said that the, the relatives were just so appreciative of knowing a bit because their, their fathers or they didn't, or brothers, whoever it was, didn't talk about it much. Absolutely, Sue. They never spoke. And looking back, they probably all suffered from an element of post-traumatic stress disorder, which wasn't recognized at that time. These men and women went through horrific experiences, and they found it very difficult to relate. I've just done a profile with a gentleman from Cape Town who's 99, And he did a full document of his experience as a tank driver in Italy. And he spoke of three battles, and he refused to tell his children exactly what happened in those battles. He describes how he drove drives a tank. It was a Sherman tank, which the Germans called a Tommy Cooker. Because if they struck the tank, the tanks would ignite and the occupants would die. And he re- he refused to actually inform his children exactly what occurred in those battles. He spoke about other aspects of the war. It was too traumatic for him to do so. And you, this is a recurring theme or occurring event you actually find with the survivors of the war. You mentioned to me um, about Millicent Rose uh, van der Kaar. Just tell me a bit about her. her. Rose Millicent van der Kaar was born in Benoni. She was the daughter of a a Dutch Jew, Mayor or Mick van der Kaar. He was a mine manager in Benoni. Her mother actually was a Scottish woman, uh, Rubina Walker who came to South Africa, had converted to Judaism, and they had five children, four daughters and a son. And Rose Millicent van der Kaar was a nurse. And she was one of four South African nurses who was awarded the Florence Nightingale Award in 1947. She enlisted in the uh, Defence Force. She spent 2,080 days in active service, Hmm. starting off in South Africa, going to Egypt, to a number of the hospitals, into Italy. She was based at the Polyclinic in Bari. In fact, she and four other nurses shared one room in the Polyclinic throughout Hmm. the war. And after the war, when she came back to South Africa, she met a farmer in Araby Gorge and they got married, um, Peter Ross. Now, the issue about her is I could find very little information. And then I found that her daughter has recently written a book about her because only at the age of 90 
Did Rose Millicent find a car, or Ross is her married name, actually tell her children what she experienced? Mm. So her daughter, Nora Simpson, has kindly sent me extracts from the book. I'm actually planning to get the book because it's been uh, reprinted. And she goes in detail about her mother's um, experience during the war. That'll be fascinating. We'll be back in a moment. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and I'm back with Peter Bailey and Dr. Naomi Rappaport. We are actually going to be ending pretty soon. So, Peter, I I wanted to discuss with you about the Warsaw Ghetto, but we're going to have to have a, a program on our own for that because we started so late today. Uh, unfortunately, we have had to cut our program pretty short. Um, we will definitely in the new year get back together and, and actually have one on the Warsaw Ghetto particularly. Uh, Naomi's also got a lot more stories to tell. And next time we will definitely start on time and perhaps we'll be back in studio because at the moment we're all on Skype. And all the presenters are working from home. So to all the listeners listening in, I have had a few messages coming through on my phone saying that, um, you know, that they're enjoying the program, but they're sorry they didn't hear the beginning. But in actual fact, they did hear the beginning. We just didn't. <laughs> so I'm really, I apologize to both of you. Um, Franklin Roosevelt said, those who have long enjoyed such privileges as we enjoy, forget in time that men and women have died to win them. And that is so true. And I think that's what we need to remember. The people who came before us, who did actually allow us to live our lives, and even if they themselves didn't talk about it. Peter, what would you like to say to end? To end, I just we didn't get to the Warsaw Ghetto. But I just want to quote a little something from the Warsaw Ghetto story very quickly. A chap on the name of Marek Edelman was the only, one of the only surviving ZOB commanders, the only surviving ZOB commanders said the inspiration to fight came from a decision not to allow the Germans to pick the time and place of their death. Wow. Absolutely. Look at that. Look at that choice. They remained with their choice and right until the end. Hmm. Fantastic. Naomi, what would you like to say to end? I would like people who have relatives who were in the war to try and get them to document it because it's an important legacy that the next generation need to know about. Absolutely. And if they would like to get hold of you, they can email you on nrapaport, spelled R-A-P-E-P-O-R-T, at global.co.za. If you would like to know more about the Chaim Herzog Museum, please go onto their website and you can pick up South Africa on there. It is in Hebrew, but you go onto all the different categories and you will come, it will come up in English. Um, are you going to go there, uh, Naomi, for the opening? I hope to be in Israel. I was um, taken on a tour by Tzvika when I was in Israel last um, and Peter uh, uh, Bailey subsequently went as well. The museum is still in the process of construction. 
They're creating a magnificent garden there. And um, they're going to have a resource library. And if anyone has any interesting books relating to South African Jewry, please let us know. Because it's, uh, it's very difficult to find a lot of the old books. And so uh, they would be an excellent resource for the museum. Great. Okay. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate it and I apologize to everyone listening in for actually cutting the program short. We will be back again, the three of us together next year, and perhaps Zika will be with us too. Thank you so much and thank you, Craig, and thank you, Bussi.